I'm going to go ahead and, um, and ask Sean to go ahead and come up. I'm going to pray for him here in just a moment. That's right. These things don't, they fall off. There we go. So, uh, Sean and Katie, they've been in uh, full-time missions 27-plus years. And um, what a giving of themselves that they were saying yes to God. When God said go, uh, that they said yes. And, uh, and, and we just want to say, you, you guys who go like this and leave your, your, your families, your home, uh, your friends, there is, I believe, an extra reward for you in heaven because uh, that is a sacrifice that, um, you know, others don't experience. And, and yet God does this um, over and over again throughout the world, uh, world, through all generations. He must have people who will go. And you have been a faithful senders. We've been supporting uh, the Ellis's for 25 or so plus years. And, uh, and, and so your prayers, your giving has been so important to them. And uh, we look forward if you throw in some this morning to hear about the ministry or if it's mostly on Wednesday night, Wednesday night we will have um, a, uh, just a time to, to let them share. At 6.30 here in the gathering place there will be some refreshments and uh, to let Sean and, and others and, and, and Katie and others, if, if, if so, just share their heart and, and kind of give us updates and things to how to continue to pray for them. And so I encourage you to come back Wednesday night. Uh, but it is a privilege to have you here, Sean. You are a uh, gifted teacher of the Word of God. And with that, we know that uh, we have an opportunity, if our hearts are open, to be transformed by the Word of God today. Uh, let's pray for him, and let's pray for the service. Lord Jesus, we uh, thank you, Lord, for your anointing uh, and your teaching. Uh, Lord God, thank you that you are uh, you're more than enough uh, Lord God, in, in providing all that we need in being transformed. Our ears are open to your spirit today. Uh, we're open to you. We're open to uh, the scriptures. We're open to Sean's words, Lord God, that, Lord, you would guide them and be a transforming power in our lives. Uh, we thank you for the Ellis family. Bless them while they're here in Kentucky, uh, and, and we thank you for them in Jesus' name. Amen. Sean, I haven't taken up the offering yet. And, uh, and I thought something felt weird when I, when I called you up, that something was out of order. That's what it was. Okay, so we actually are uh, going back to uh, our practice of receiving um, an offering during this, the worship time with the, the offering plate. So if you gentlemen come on down here up front, please. I'm going to pray for it. And though I know that uh, many of you have given online, we have people who, who sometimes up to half of our church family just gives online. So uh, if, if someone doesn't put something in the offering plate today, they probably gave a lot, even maybe twice as much as you gave today online, all right? So you don't know, right? They are, they're a generous giver too. And, uh, uh, but we found that we, it's an encouragement, it's a reminder, it helps those who give by cash to give cash more regularly, and we have boxes in the back as well. All right, let's pray over this offering. And, and what you'll do is if you want to give to uh, the Ellis Ministry. Uh, you can write a second check to Living Waters for that. Uh, you can put a note at the bottom of the check uh, that such and such is for tithes, and then this such and such is for uh, the Ellis Ministry, okay? Let's pray. 
Well, Father, uh, we are um, privileged to give. Uh, this is something that we get to do. Uh, we get to give our tithes and offerings into what you're doing in this church family, this state, in, the, in all the ministries around the world that we support. But, Lord God, we thank you that uh, today is a day of uh, where you uh, are honored in our giving and that you bless us back, Lord God. And we thank you, Lord, that the Ellis family is going to get blessed too. And we thank you, Lord, for uh, meeting all their needs in abundance, uh, Lord God, that, that, they, that you would take away worry off of them uh, and uh, financial worry, Lord, and you just, and in all your faithfulness, you again prove your faithfulness again to them with abundance and finances in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Sean, I know you've never done that in, in your church. You've never gotten, you know, anything out of order there. You're, you're always nailing on the head. Thank you for your grace there. Thanks, All right, Stephen. Here we go. So Stephen said, 27 years. When you say it out loud, it seems like a very, very long time. Uh, I could go back a few years before that and uh, remember the time when Stephen Riley was my youth group pastor. Um, and, and, I, and I would like to take credit for the fact that he's a lead pastor today. Uh, because I think after me, he really realized he had no desire uh, to be a youth group pastor and deal with problematic people. Um, but I appreciate all the faithfulness uh, of Living Waters Church and Stephen and all the prayers and, and the support over the years. Uh, you know, what Stephen said, it's been three years since we've been able to be back here in the United States uh, due to the pandemic. And I was thinking back to that time, uh, back in 2019 when I was here, and it was really a a very difficult time, honestly, uh, in my life because about a year before that, I had been diagnosed with a rare heart condition. I'd never been hospitalized, never broken a bone, never had any like major health scare, and literally almost died from a heart attack, had to be put on medication. And, um, and, and just about a year after that, uh, actually just really shortly before I came here the last time, uh, one year from when I was diagnosed with that first heart condition, I was diagnosed with a second heart condition. I guess it was a two-for-one special. And, um, and, and had to have a surgical procedure in order to fix that problem. And when I came here, I was just still recovering. I was still adjusting to uh, the medication. My heart was still healing. And um, I would like to take this moment just to point out that while I was suffering and on the verge of death, my wife thought it was the perfect opportunity for a selfie. So um, very loving, very supportive wife. Not sure about uh, her timing on the selfies, but um, she was upbeat. She supported me while I uh, was uh, yeah, wondering where, where my life was going. So uh, because of all of those things, there's nothing like, you know, near-death experience. There's nothing like having health problems to make you question and really wonder, what is God's will for my life? And what is God's plan for my life? God is this part of it. Uh, at the time, I was only 47 years old, and you think, is really, is this it? And I was still trying to figure out, how is this going to impact my life? Am I going to be able to stay in missions? I remember Katie asking me, are you going to be able to work full time? And we just really didn't have any answers uh, to any of those questions. And, And so there's this real, you know, struggle 
right? With God, where are you? And, and God, what, what is happening? Um, but I think as I came through that time, I thought, well, okay, at least nothing worse can happen, right? That's got to be the worst thing to happen, to have this near-death experience, to have all these heart conditions and stuff like that. Uh, and boy, was I wrong. Because how in the world would I know that after we returned to Taiwan in 2019, just really just a few months later, in a country right next to us called China, there would be the start of this thing that you all know about called COVID, a global pandemic. So if I thought just my individual heart problems were bad, there's nothing like a global pandemic to wake you up to the fact that there is something much bigger going on. And of course, we all know how that impacted our lives. If there was the fear at first, all the unknown, the lack of, of any kind of treatment. Uh, there was illness. Uh, there was death. And, and then came the isolation as we felt cut off from everyone. And, and then we lost people that we loved and that we cared about. And as a pastor, of course, uh, it was a difficult time because all the momentum that you felt like you'd built up in the church of evangelism and reaching out to the community and building up all the ministries just, just come crashing, grinding to a halt as the shutdowns and the lockdowns would happen. And then they'd start back again, right? And you'd, you'd try to build that momentum back again. And that was one of the worst things about the pandemic is it's never over. <laughs> it just feels like it just keeps coming back and, and coming back. But as a missionary, one of the most personally, one of the most uh, difficult things for me um, was the fact that Taiwan, uh, in order to deal with the pandemic, just closed its borders. And, and travel became really expensive. All American airlines quit flying in and out of Taiwan. There was an extremely long and difficult quarantine process. And pretty much all of that made it impossible almost for us to fly here and to visit our family and to visit you. And it made it almost impossible for our family to come and to visit us. Now, I know the history of missions. I know that missionaries in the past did not have the expectation that they would be able just to fly home and in one day, you know, be there. You know, we tell people it takes about 27 hours door to door for us to get from Taiwan uh, to the United States to Kentucky. And people are like, oh, that's so bad. We feel so bad for you. But people in the old days, they went years and years, seven years, eight years, 10 years, and they never were able to travel all the way back home and to see their family. And if they got on that boat, they didn't know if they would even make it back home. There's one statistic that in the 1600s, the missionaries that were coming, the Jesuits to China, one out of every two died, either on the voyage there or on the voyage back. 50% casualty rate. I mean, so, so you know that, right? But because we had this blessing of being able to come back. Sometimes there for a stretch uh, when I was doing Asbury, I was coming back every summer. And one year I came back twice. And, 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 and there's this new cost. There's this new cost to following the will of God. And I was not really that happy about following it, about paying that cost, about missing time with my family. This is uh, the first time Right In three years that I've been here in Kentucky, we're going to California next where my wife's family is. It's been five years since I have been there and visited with her family. 
It was, it, it was great these last two weeks. I've had all of my kids with me. That's the first time in a year and a half that we've been all together. And so if I weren't already struggling with following God's will and understanding his plan, when I went through the near heart attack and all the health problems, I guarantee you that these last three years have only pushed me more and more. And I can tell you there are times when I just felt too tired, too fatigued, too sad to feel like paying the cost anymore. And this is, this is part of our, our Christian lives, right? This, this, this struggle. And it, it's, it's brought up this famous saying of Jesus Christ, and it just has been going through my mind over these last few years. And, and that saying, you'll, you'll recognize it, it is, not your will, God, but mine be done. Wait a minute, that, there's something wrong with that, right? <laughs> Sorry, that was the new millennial translation of the Bible. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. Right? You know that's not right. You know what Jesus actually said is, not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours, God, be done. And, and, and that, we, we struggle with that. And not only do we struggle with that, sometimes we convince ourselves that our will is really God's will. And so I think we need to take some time in the midst of everything that's going on in the world and in our lives to look at this saying a little bit closely. Um, And this is something that Jesus said shortly before his own death and his crucifixion. And we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. If you want to be opening up your Bibles or your Bible apps, uh, we're going to start out in chapter 14, right around verse 32. Now, Jesus, for the previous three years of his life, had been traveling around village to village, preaching that the kingdom was at hand. But this time was characterized by power, signs, and wonders. Jesus was walking on water. Jesus was multiplying bread. Jesus was healing the lame and the sick and raising people from the dead. So it was an extraordinary time. Crowds are following him from place to place, and everybody's just waiting with expectancy to see Jesus enter Jerusalem and take his place on the throne of David. However, Jesus knew something else was coming. And in his final trip to Jerusalem, again and again, the Gospel of Mark and the other Gospels tell us that Jesus was predicting something to his disciples and they didn't want to hear it. He kept telling them over and over, when we get to Jerusalem, I will be betrayed, I will be handed over to the Gentiles, I will be beaten, and I will suffer and die. And the disciples, they, they you know, like Peter, they rebuked Jesus for saying things like this, and they, they, they just refused. They were in this denial state, and Jesus would just keep saying it. I, when we get to Jerusalem, my time is at hand to glorify the Father. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. So he knows this is what is taking place as they get closer and closer and closer. And it doesn't matter that the people of Jerusalem welcomed him as a king, crying out, Hosanna, son of David, and put out the palm branches before him. He knows that this is the last week of his life. Now it comes down to the last supper. That's what we were just, again, reenacting. With the Lord's Supper, that was the very first time that Jesus said, this is my body, which is about to be broken. This is my blood, which is about to be poured out for you. And after that last supper, Jesus now knows he doesn't have weeks. He's got maybe hours 
left before his suffering and sacrifice begins. And what does he do with these last hours? What would you do, right? What would you do if you knew that you only had a few hours left of your life? Most of us maybe would go and be with family. Uh, Maybe if we wanted to get an advertising deal, we'd say we're going to Disneyland. Whatever it is, right? You pick something amazing. Go have your favorite steak dinner. I don't know. But what Jesus does is recorded in chapter 14, starting in verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John along with him. And he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. But going a little farther, he fell to the ground and he prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus chose to spend his final hours in prayer, and he prayed in this place that the Bible says is called the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, I know that many of you have traveled to Israel. Maybe you've been able to visit the garden. If you have not, the Garden of Gethsemane is right at the foot of the Mount of Olives. And if you go up over the Mount of Olives, you're going east out of Jerusalem. You're going towards the Dead Sea and out of town. If you were to turn around and look on the other side from the Mount of Olives in the garden, you would see the temple. This was the location of the temple during the time of Jesus. Now today, of course, there's a church because everywhere in Israel, there's something that Jesus did or sneezed or spoke. They plant a church there and it becomes a tourist attraction. But it's actually quite moving to go beside the church to some of these old, old olive trees um, where Jesus perhaps prayed under. And uh, the name Gethsemane comes from the Hebrew. And uh, we think of it, maybe when you think garden, I don't know if you think of squash, strawberries. uh, I don't know what garden means to you. In Asia, it means rock paths and bubbling fountains. But really here, the name Gethsemane gives away what the purpose of this garden was. The name Gethsemane means oil press. And so this wasn't just a garden. This was an orchard of olive trees. And in this orchard is where they would press the olives down into olive oil, a very uh, precious commodity back then. And so I think it's very fitting, along with this story, that Jesus is somewhere where things were being pressed and squeezed, right? Because that was what he was experiencing at this time in his life. And the Gospel of Luke says that when Jesus was in Jerusalem, he would go often to this garden to pray. And, and it's, it, I think throughout the Gospels, Jesus shows that no matter what circumstance he is going through in his life, prayer is so important and so vital to deal with emotions, to deal with questions, to deal with doubts. And so in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus went away. It says he went away to pray, sometimes to a mountain, to a faraway place, no matter the pressing crowds that were around demanding his time, the disciples who wanted his time. Jesus would stop and he would go away. And he did this at the beginning, the middle, and now here at the very end of his ministry. And so he's here in this garden and he's here to pray. Now, what he's praying about, it's not like this is just some nice little retreat. 
You know, we think of like, oh, Jesus went away to the mountain and had a nice little devotional. Maybe he read from Oswald Chambers and, you know, kind of journaled his thoughts and butterflies landed on his shoulder. And maybe for the other two prayer times, maybe that happened. I'm not sure. But this prayer time here in Mark chapter 14, Jesus is emotionally distressed. And it is so obvious to the disciples, not just because of what Jesus says, but because of Uh, of his appearance. Uh, Verse 33 says that he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. Deeply distressed and troubled. The Gospel of Luke says that he he was sweating so hard that it it really, literally, we don't know physiologically or how this happened, he was sweating blood. Like, I've been stressed out, you know, that picture of me on the hospital bed. Yeah, a little bit of stress, right? But I was never sweating blood. Jesus is emotionally disturbed. And then he says in verse 34, he says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And I don't know uh, what you've been through in your life. I don't know if you've experienced this personally or whatever is happening with your family or a health crisis. And, and as you pray, you just feel this sorrow to the point of death. And this is Jesus Christ. This is Jesus, the Son of God, feeling this real emotion. And, and sometimes we forget. We, we know that Jesus was fully God and he was fully human. But we kind of forget that when we see all the fully God parts. The walking on water, the multiplying bread, the raising people from the dead. We forget that he was hungry, that he was thirsty, that Jesus experienced physical pain. And we already said Jesus knows what is about to happen to him in just a few short hours. He's going to suffer and die. The Romans invented crucifixion to be one of the longest and most painful deaths possible to make an example out of whoever they were crucifying. Jesus knows he's going to be flogged. He's going to be beaten. And the humanity of Jesus is not looking forward to that. Nobody does. That's a normal human behavior. We don't want to suffer. We don't want to die. And Jesus knows that's absolutely what's about to happen to him. And so that's why in his prayer, he cries out, God, if, this, if it's possible at all, take this cup from me. Because in the Old Testament, uh, there's certain prophets that would talk about this judgment of the Lord coming like, like a cup of wine, but definitely not a soothing, relaxing wine. This is a cup of wrath that is coming because of all the sin of humanity Jesus will bear on the cross. And so he says, please, just take this cup from me. Now, we said that Jesus is also fully God. And as fully God, we said he knew exactly every detail of what was about to take place. He's not in doubt about that. He knows he's going to be betrayed. He knows he's going to be beaten. He knows he's going to be crucified. And he's been saying this over and over again. He, Jesus knows the future. And because he's fully God, he knows that this is the only way. There is no other way to achieve the Father's rescue mission that he is upon. So it, it, there's no plan B. There's no plan C. Jesus knows this is it. Which leads me to ask, should lead all of us to ask, then why would Jesus ask God to take the cup away from him? He knows that's not possible. 
He knows this is the only path to providing salvation. So why is Jesus then praying and asking God, hey, if there's any way I can not be crucified, I'd really appreciate it. What is he doing? Well, I think what Jesus was doing, he was modeling something for his disciples. His disciples back then and for us as his disciples today. And what he was modeling is what do we do when we personally are struggling with following God's will, especially when we know that it's going to be a high cost that we might have to pay. And so Jesus wanted to let us know it's okay. It's okay to struggle. If Jesus, the Messiah, if Jesus, the very Son of God, struggled, and was emotionally disturbed at the circumstance of his life, and he said, I don't want this. I don't want to suffer. I don't want to go to the cross. Then, of course, us, as the normal human schlubs, we are going to struggle. (laughs) And it's okay. You don't have to feel like God's judging you because you're questioning God's plan for your life and where he's at in the midst of something that's happening to you. And again, all the stuff that's been going on these last few years, I guarantee we've been struggling. We've been asking God, please take this cup away from us. You don't have to feel guilty. You don't have to feel ashamed because even Jesus struggled with following the will and the plan of his father. However, what's super important is the thing that Jesus modeled the most was that when you struggle with following the will of the Father, run towards God and not away from him. Run towards God and not away from him. I know when I'm struggling with the will of the Father, the last thing I feel like doing is praying. I don't want to pray because I feel guilty because I know what I'm supposed to do, but I'm not doing it. And the last thing I want to do is pray because I feel like I know exactly what God's going to say. He's going to say, well, you know what you're supposed to do, don't you? And I'll say yes. And and then I'll say, well, then why aren't you doing it? And then that's the end of the conversation. (laughs) There's nowhere else to go. So I just avoid it, right? God, I'm not listening. (laughs) I'm not paying. I can't hear you if I don't pray. And and this is this immature behavior. This doesn't really help anything at all. In the moment that we struggle the most is the moment that we need God the most. And he's given us prayer as the main way that we stay communicating with him and and in relationship with him. So we need to run towards our Father. And you you notice that when he's praying, this is one of the very few places uh, where Jesus addresses God and he calls him Abba. Now, Abba is an Aramaic term, and it's, it's a term, it's an intimate term that, that, that means father or papa. And what you need to understand, you read this and you're like, oh, that's so beautiful and it's perfect timing for Father's Day, you know? Here's Jesus giving us the example of crying out to Abba, his father, we're celebrating fathers. But what you need to understand is that Jews at this time would have never used such an intimate term to address God. They just, they would never do that. That, that's something you called your human father, your physical father. I mean, think about this. In the Old Testament, one of the main names of God are these four letters, right? We call it the tetragrammaton. Now, we pronounce it today as Yahweh, 
Right? We sing it in songs, Yahweh, Yahweh. But what you need to understand is that these four letters were never meant to be spoken aloud. That the Jews felt like the name of God was so holy, so unspeakable, that they just put these four letters, this yod Hey, vav Hey, together, and when they would be reading a passage of the Old Testament and they would get to this name, they would say Adonai, which means Lord. And, and I, that's why I think it's a little ironic that we're singing Yahweh, the unspeakable name of God that we're not supposed to be singing. I'm, now, I'm not being judgmental. That's one of your favorite songs. It's okay. You just need to understand that culturally, Jews didn't go around praying to God and calling him Papa. It would, you know, God is, is, you're to awe, you're to reverence the God of our ancestors. And so when Jesus did this, it was another example to us. Yes, God is to be respected. Yes, God is to be awed. But God is also our loving Abba. And when we need him the most, he is there for us. He cares. He knows what we're struggling with. It's not like we're keeping it secret secret from him or hiding anything from him. He knows the doubts, the emotional distress we have in our heart. So we might as well just verbalize it. And speak it out and confess it before him. And then he is there. He cares. He is our father. So let's run towards God and not away from him. So Jesus modeled that it's okay to struggle. It's okay to question and doubt God's will. He modeled that in that time you want to run towards God. You want to pray. And then Jesus uttered his famous words. After all of that was said and done, he said, yet not what I will, but your will be done. Not what I will, but your will be done. Now, last year, we had a missions conference uh, at our church in Taiwan because it's really our hope, our heart, uh, that we raise up the Taiwanese to be missionaries. It's not just us going over to be missionaries, but the end goal is to raise up the national leaders and then to raise up missionaries within our church and that they would go out. And we have a couple that is preparing right now, thank goodness visas are finally open again, to go out to an unreached uh, area in the southern Philippines. And so we wanted to do this missions conference to kind of encourage other people that um, they too can do missions. And so because we've been in missions for 25 plus years, they were like, hey, you know, Pastor Sean, why don't you share the story of how you became a missionary? Now, I know what they were expecting. They were expecting all those great stories you read about and those little books about missionaries. They wanted me to say, well, when I was a kid at Living Waters Church, uh, one day a missionary came to spoke, and, and I just, the Spirit of the Lord came on me, and I, I just ran up to the front, and Stephen Riley prayed over me and felt the word of the Lord was to go, just go to Asia, and eh. That is not what happened at all. When I joined a missionary organization, I was almost 22 years old, and the only thing that I knew is that I was miserable, that I was depressed, I lacked purpose in my life, I was not happy, and I was so desperate to find an answer that I decided to do a mission trip. And I signed up for this mission trip with no intention of ever becoming a missionary. Yuck, who wants to be a missionary? Raise support, beg for money, no thanks. <laughs> right? I'd rather be like kicked by a horse than do support raising. 
And, and so I, I just thought, I'm just going to go. And six months in Hawaii, in Costa Rica, which was where our missions outreach would be, it's going to be an amazing time. And maybe I'll figure out what is wrong with my life. Well, God, of course, knew what was wrong with my life. And so I stayed in the missions organization, got married. And, uh, but, you know, for me, I, I wanted to be a professor. Like once I finally was like, okay, God, okay, okay, I'll do something Bible-ish with my life. Uh, how about seminary professor? Because, you know, then I'll have a nice house by the campus. I'll drive my convertible. Students will sit at my feet right, worshiping me and eating up every word that I say. I'll get a paycheck. I'll be respected. I can write books and serve your kingdom. That's, you know, side benefit for you. So uh, that's what I really wanted to do. And so even though God's call was so clear for us to be missionaries, my wife had accepted that. She was super excited about it. It was me that was struggling. And, And finally, four years into being in a missions organization, I finally said, okay, four years of being a missionary before I would finally admit that God had a lifetime calling on me for missions. And I quit making these one to two year commitments and just said, buckle up, this could be the rest of my life. I was willing to finally say, not my will, but yours be done. Well, I've got another embarrassing secret while I'm spilling all of these out and you're feeling less impressed with me. Uh, I never wanted to be a pastor. Uh, who in the world, who in their right mind would ever want to be a pastor? And uh, this is me a little bit down the road. Uh, because, you know, pastors have to do things like, you know, do funerals and do weddings and do counseling and deal with people and, you know, just all of that really annoying stuff. And, um, you know, uh, so I thought, you know, I really... I'm so grateful that even though I'm a missionary, I'm called to be a Bible teacher. And for 17 years in our organization, that's pretty much what I did. I started Bible schools in order to train missionaries. And we pioneered them in different parts of Asia and uh, traveled to different parts of the world, you know, to do staff development and to train these missionaries. And I was like, woohoo, dodged a bullet there. Got to be called as a lifetime missionary who's not a pastor and doesn't do church planting. Yes, thank you. Um, and, and so when we moved to Taichung, Taiwan, which is where we currently live in the center part of Taiwan, uh, we joined a bilingual church plant, Mandarin English, called House of Blessing. And uh, at the time, they did not have a pastor. They did not have a full-time staff. And they found out I was a Bible teacher. You got to really keep those kind of skills hidden when you join a church. If you're a youth group leader, you can fix cars, computers, any of that stuff. You just want to kind of keep that in the back pocket. So they, they found out that I was a Bible teacher, and they're like, hey, Bible teacher, why don't you preach for us, you know, just every couple of months. That's all we're asking. Just every couple of months, just slide in that rotation, do your thing. And I'm like, yeah, I could do that, you know, like I can grace you with my teaching. I think I could do that. And um, that turned into, hey, well, you know, what do you think about once a month preaching? Like, yeah, once a month, I can still do that. That's not too bad. And that turned into, hey, why don't you join the elder board? Which turned into, hey, why don't you lead the elder board? Which turned into, hey, why don't you oversee all of the preaching and the teaching at the church? And you wake up one day baptizing someone going, hey, wait a minute. (laughs) What happened here? I've been bamboozled. God, you tricked me. (laughs) I never wanted to be a pastor. 
And in fact, when people would talk to me, like when Taiwanese would come up, they would say, oh, I'm a shu, because I is my last name in Chinese. Mu shu means pastor. I would be like, oh, bu shu, bu shu, bu shu. I'm not a pastor. You know, I would say, oh, wo shu yi ge zhang lao, which if I pronounce it wrong can mean I'm a cockroach. But if I pronounce it correctly, <laughs> which happens occasionally, pronounce it correctly, it means I'm an elder. Like for years, I would correct people, no, no I'm not a pastor. I'm an, I'm an elder. Big difference there. You know, you need to, you know, elder, grace you with my preaching, pastor, have to help you when you have problems. See the difference there? I want to make that very clear. And, um, and, and this time, you know, because I was so much older uh, at this time, and I'd gone through the earlier uh, issue with fighting God's will on being a missionary, it only took me, I'm proud to say, eight years of struggling with God before I was finally willing to say, okay. Okay, I will follow your will, God. I will be a pastor. And, and, and honestly, that's been one of the biggest blessings of my life. But I finally had to say, not my will. Not my will, but yours be done. Now, thankfully, in the, in the garden, the story keeps going after Jesus' famous words. Because there's two pretty clear things I think we all know about ourselves at this point. We know we're not Jesus. I think that's hopefully, if you weren't clear about that, um, that'd be uh, worth the price of coming to church today. We are not Jesus. And two, we struggle and we fail sometimes with doing what God wants us to do with our lives. Uh, and, and because of this, we need a little encouragement. We need the rest of the story because we're not always going to be able to do and we're not going to be willing to do what Jesus did. Now, the second part of the story is about the disciples, because uh, as Jesus is praying, he's got a very simple request for three of these guys. That very simple request is stay awake. Stay awake. Now, I know that some of you today, that's a big challenge for you, perhaps, but I'm asking you, Jesus is asking you, stay awake. They don't have to die for the sins of humanity. They don't have to start a new covenant. They don't have to walk on water. They don't have to multiply food. All they have to do is stay awake. That's pretty simple, right? Well, let's see how those guys do with that. So continuing in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, verses 37 through 42. Then he returned to the disciples and he found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and he prayed the same thing. And when he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough! The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise! Let us go. Here comes my betrayer. So Jesus, uh, all of the disciples went with him to the garden, but he only asked three. Only Peter, James, and John. He asked them to come a little farther with him into that garden, and he specifically asked these three to pray with him and to stay awake. Now, these three, we, we call them the inner core 
because they seemed to have a special relationship with Jesus that the other disciples didn't have. When Jesus went onto the mountain, he was transfigured into his divine form. These three were with him. Uh, when he went to raise a little girl from the dead, one of his first resurrections that we know of, only these three were allowed to go with him. So these are tight friends of Jesus. They, he is entrusted so much to them. And all he's asking them to do is to stay awake, and they can't do it. Not just one time, like the first time, I'm sure. Like, can you imagine, first of all, just the, the, the hurt, the disappointment on Jesus' face? Like, really? <laughs> really? I, all I asked you to do is stay awake. You can't do that. And, and, you know, they're like, right? They're waking up, sleepies out of their eyes, you know, slobber coming down. Oh, sorry, Jesus. Well, no, you know, we care about you. We love you. We'll, we'll stay awake this time. Jesus comes back. Second time, third time, they're snoring. They're out of it. They're, they're in dreamland, you know? And <laughs> this is highly ironic, especially for Peter, because Peter had just told Jesus and everybody at the Last Supper, Lord, I will never, ever betray you. Because Jesus predicted that one of the disciples was going to betray him. And Peter's like, not me. <laughs> I'm super Peter, right? I'm one of the inner three. I will never betray you, even unto death. And Jesus is like, dude, you can't even stay awake. <laughs> you can't even fight your flesh for like an hour or two and pray with me, even though you see that I am troubled. I am anguished. I am a sorrowful to the point of death. Well, it's only going to get worse for Peter, right? <laughs> if he thinks falling asleep and disappointing Jesus was bad, it, it goes from bad to worse. Because just a few hours later, Jesus is betrayed by Judas. He's arrested. Uh, and then he's taken away to the high priest's house to undergo a trial. Peter uh, follows at a distance. Someone sees Peter. And then recognizes him as a Galilean, as one of Jesus' disciples, goes up and confronts him about it and says, hey, aren't you that Peter guy? Aren't you one of those followers of Jesus of Nazareth? And here's a critical moment for Peter. It's a critical moment. Is he going to be willing to be arrested along with Jesus and possibly be put to death? Or is he going to protect his own life? Is he going to follow God's will? Which is always that we are not ashamed. We are not embarrassed of the gospel. We are not afraid to pay the cost even unto death to stand up and declare that Jesus is our Lord and that we are a Christian. We follow him. And Peter was like, Jesus? <laughs> Jesus who? I don't, I don't know Jesus. I, I don't know any Jesus. Galilee, I've never even been there. And he not only does that one time, right? He does it a second time. He does it a third time. And basically what he is saying is, I want to stay alive. I want my will. My will is to avoid arrest. My will is to avoid suffering. And therefore, I'm willing to deny that I even know this man that I've just spent three years with and who raised people from the dead. And I saw transfigured. I saw his divine form. And now I act like I don't even know him. Like, if you don't know him, nobody does. If you've seen him in his divine form on a mountain, right, and yet you deny him the very first time you're put in this pressure situation. 
And at that point, obviously, Peter went and he wept bitterly. But what he does next is the most important thing for us. He falls. He fails. But he repents. <laughs> he repents. He, he, he cries out to the Lord. The Lord gives him a time to restore his relationship, to receive forgiveness there on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And he commands Peter to feed my sheep. Do you love me? Do you love me? Feed my sheep. And Peter, something, something changes, right? Because we know the rest of the story from Peter's life. Peter, he's willing to be a missionary now. He's willing to go. And he went all throughout Asia Minor, preaching the gospel, risking his life. In the book of Acts, uh, he refused to stop preaching the gospel in Jerusalem. Even when he was arrested, he was brought in front of the most powerful religious Jews at the time. And he said, hey, uh, you know, we have to obey God, he said. We have to obey God. And you know what his reward for that was? He and John were flogged. They were flogged. And it just kind of is like one little sentence, and they were flogged and then released. The amount of pain, the amount of suffering. And what did they do after that? They went back, reported this to disciples, and had a praise and worship session, saying, thank you, God, that you considered us worthy to suffer for your kingdom. And not only that, not inside of Acts, but according to church tradition, Peter was eventually crucified for his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in fact, he made a special request. He said, I am not worthy to die in the same manner as my Lord. And he requested that they crucify him upside down. Crucify him upside down. So, so what changed, right? How did Peter go from like, yeah, I don't even know Jesus, to like, I'm not even worthy to die like Jesus? What happened in his life? What happened in his heart? Well, I believe there there was a question that he had to eventually answer. You see, the reason that Jesus was willing to pay the, the cost is he knew it was worth it. He knew what was on the other side. As we said, he knew that the only way, the only way to restore the relationship between humanity and a holy God was his death on the cross as the perfect lamb, as the sinless one. The only way to provide forgiveness and eternal life would be if he would go through flogging and beating and humiliation and death and suffering. And he counted that cost worthy. He counted that cost worthy for you and I, millions, billions of people around the world who receive him by faith and now will share an eternal life. And he said that is worth the cost. You have to always come back to that. We're not suffering for the sake of suffering. Suffering does not make you more righteous God isn't happy if you suffer and he thinks, oh, now you're really holy. That's the mistake the monks made, right? Back in the Middle Ages. Suffering is purposeless if it's not for a purpose, right? And that purpose is the benefit, the eternal resting place of people's very souls. And I think Peter finally recorded this for us in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. So 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. It's, it's, he's coming to the close of his letter, and this is how he encourages the church. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. 
Peter realized we will suffer. We will suffer. If we want to follow God's will, if, if we want other people to come to a knowledge of Christ, right, we have to pay a cost. There will be persecution. There will be career. Maybe there will be money. There will be being away from your family. But you're going to suffer in this world even if you're not a Christian. That's what I always think. Like, I don't really think being an atheist helps you out because you're still going to suffer. It's just for no purpose, with no end, other than death and oblivion. But Peter came to this realization Right? We will suffer, whether it's for Jesus or just in life, but it's just a little while. And it doesn't feel like that. I know that. I know it never feels like when you're in the middle of suffering, when someone that you love or that you are facing suffering, it never feels like a little while. It feels like an eternity. Right? It feels like it's never going to end. But Peter realized it's just a little while compared to what? Compared to eternal glory, he says eternal eternity with no suffering with no death with no covid with no cancer with no persecution with no evil with no sin with no gun violence none of that right an eternity of peace with god our father in heaven that that that's worth it peter said and i think he came to realize somewhere in his journey it was worth it and so he was willing to say not my will but yours be done. I'd like to invite the, the worship team to, to come back up and prepare to help us to kind of just challenge ourselves and to think about where are we at and what is our response to the words of Jesus in the gospel. You know, I, I, we, we all might be at different places in our personal struggle of following God's will for our lives. And I think that the events of the last couple of years, I know for me, heart conditions, pandemic, all of it has just reminded me how short life can be. It's reminded me how fragile life can be. It's reminded me to think about what is eternal and what really uh, uh, makes our lives worth living and what are we going to face when we die. And, and it also, the, the events even of just this last week, in the stock market, makes us realize that things that we work so many years and build up and, 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 and hoard those treasures, poof, could be gone just like that. And, and, and all of it just makes us come back to thinking, okay, you, we're going to fail. We're going to struggle. I mean, I know I have. I've shared that with you today. I know we will. I know we'll struggle to pay that cost. We'll struggle to follow the will of God. But in that moment, what was Jesus' encouragement? Come to the Father. Come to Abba. And that's our chance this morning. That's what we were doing this morning in prayer. And, and some of you were taking advantage of this time, right, to come forward. And, and as we did communion, to come to Abba, Father, and just to say, I am struggling. That was that song that we were singing, right? That, we, that we're struggling, maybe even unto sorrow, unto death. And we come and we just say, Abba, Father, I've got nowhere else to go. I've got nothing else to turn to but you and it's enough your grace is sufficient for your power is made perfect in our weakness so in your life this morning is it your will or god's will that's being done only you can answer that question people on the outside may have no idea what's happening and i believe the same thing is true for living waters church because I know if we follow god's will individually or living waters as a church there's going to be a cost 
Right? There's going to be sacrifice. There's going to be something that you don't want to do, that you feel like you're not able to or not willing to pay. But is it worth it so that all might come to know the name of Jesus? Is it worth it that all might find forgiveness and healing and wholeness and eternal life? I, I, I hope we're able to say, not our will, but yours be done. Let's pray. Father, we do struggle. We struggle with the suffering we go through in this life. And we struggle when people we love and we care about are, are suffering, God. We want our will so badly. We never want to admit how self-centered and selfish that we are. But you, Lord Jesus, you show us the way. The way is to throw ourselves at the feet of God of our Abba Father. On this Father's Day, we need our Abba Father more than ever. God, would you help us to repent? Would you help us to have faith, the courage to say, not our will, but yours be done. I'm going to ask you to stand during this last worship song. I'm going to ask the altar ministry teams if you go ahead and, and set up here on the sides and be available for prayer. Sean, if you'd be available for prayer as well, appreciate that. I want us to say out loud a salvation prayer. Uh, there could be someone online right now or someone watching later this week. It could be someone here that has been away from God. They've been uh, distant. They've been going in their will and now for a number of months, maybe getting into years, going in and away from God in their own will. And you know this morning you want to be sure that you are back uh, following Christ and, and, and maybe even re, re, you know, rededicate your life or perhaps maybe salvation, that you're not even sure that you're saved. And so I'm going to just say a, a simple salvation prayer. I'm going to ask everyone here. Uh, and you online as well to just join with me in saying it out loud. And uh, if this is a a sincere prayer for you this morning, then a miracle is happening happening right now, and you're being restored to the Father. Please repeat after me, dear Father. I want to come back to you. I don't want to be distant any longer. I receive the forgiveness of the blood of the Lord, Savior, Jesus. Wash me clean by your blood. Make me a new creature in Christ. I believe that you died on the cross and rose again from the dead. Come and live with me in me now and forever I want to serve you all the days of my life never to turn away again thank you father for receiving me again as your child in Jesus name amen let's sing this last song again let's can continue to just be open uh, to the Lord 
as he continues to speak. And then I'll say a final blessing for your week. Thank you. I've carried a burden for too long on my own. I wasn't created to bear it alone. I hear your invitation to let it all go. And I see My soul needs a friend, so I'll run to the Father again and again and again and again. Lord, thank you that you're alive and well with your love. And on today's Father's Day, we ask for your blessing on our families, on our gatherings. We pray that you draw us together uh, through the love of God. We pray, Lord, that our families be witnesses to others. And Lord, that the love of God will, will include and bring the love of God to other people who are alone today, those who've lost their fathers recently. Lord God, we pray today would be a time of remembrance of 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 the gift of fatherhood and lord that you would provide comfort today and father we continue to ask for your blessing on our week we can't do it without you in our own strength we're dependent upon you and so we say bless us with your amazing grace your outpouring of grace and the power of your spirit in your name we pray amen you're blessed have a great week See you again soon. You saw my condition, had a plan from the start.